You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Uh, I hope everybody uh, not only uh, consumed some delicious food, but got a little bit of energy, because uh, we have an exciting final panel uh, here today. Uh, my name is Alex Thier, and I'm the executive director at ODI. Um, and I will introduce our panelists in a second. Um, but I'm really looking forward uh, to our discussion, because I understand, I'm sorry I wasn't here this morning, uh, but it's been a really rich discussion based on a really rich set of case studies um, that have pointed to some interesting evidence, but also some real challenges. Uh, and so what our panel is meant to do is to bring together some practitioners and policymakers and advocates to talk about what this all means um, and to think through the implications of how we deal with some of the underlying challenges that have been presented um, in the report. Um, and understanding that impoverishment affects a, a really significant proportion of people who are coming out of poverty, um, and that this is, of course, due to some complex factors that vary over place and time, and ultimately it is the responsibility um, of people who are in the business of making decisions about where to put resources, about designing programs, about advocating for the right types of programs to take account of this evidence and information and make better policy and make better programs uh, to deal with some of the challenges that have been outlined here. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do is briefly introduce our four panelists, then I'm going to turn to them uh, each for a maximum of five minutes. I'm going to take off my watch uh, and remind me. Uh, and that's because uh, what we really value, I think, is uh, uh, opportunity to have a discussion, uh, maybe challenge each other a little bit, and also to have you engage in that as well. Uh, so uh, immediately uh, here to the far left, uh, we're going to start with Lewis Temple. And uh, Lewis is the Chief Executive Officer of BRAC UK. Um, and I'll let him say something about what uh, he spends his time on. Um, uh, then we're going to turn uh, on the far right side, without intention of political affiliation, uh, is Diana Skelton, who is the head of mission here in the UK for ATD Fourth World. Um, and she has been the deputy director of that movement since 2008 um, and told me she recently came from Madagascar. So maybe we'll hear some insights um, from there. Um, and uh, then we will hear from Romilly Greenhill, who is currently the director of One UK. Um, uh, Romilly recently left ODI uh, to take up that post um, and uh, has already become a frequent engage, uh, person who's very much engaged in commenting on a lot of the big issues of the day here in UK decision making. Um, and then last and certainly not least is Tim Conway, uh, who's the Senior Social Development Advisor on Governance Conflict and the Social Development Team uh, at DFID. Um, so I'm going to turn to each of you um, uh, to focus, uh, and I'm going to repeat one more time that what would be great uh, for the audience, I think, to hear sort of, first of all, how do you process what it is that we've learned coming out of this research? Uh, what does it tell you about what you are doing or should be doing? Um, what does it then tell you about uh, some of the challenges to, to making that transition to what we should be doing? Why aren't we already doing it? Um, this is new research, but it's not necessarily broadly uh, new information about some of the things that are going on. Um, and then what specific recommendations do you have uh, for your own organization, for others sitting here, for others in the audience, uh, about how they might change that? Uh, I also want to welcome folks who are watching online. I have a magical device that will allow you to communicate with me. So if you have questions or comments, please uh, forward them as we talk. Thank you very much, Alex. Um, and, and good afternoon, everyone. I really enjoyed the discussion this morning and, and learned a lot. Um, I'm from BRAC, which is a Bangladeshi organization founded in the early 1970s. Um, and has be become quite a large-scale organization in Bangladesh. Um, but around 15 years ago, um, 
became uh, very aware that a lot of its mainstream work in education, health, microfinance, um, and agricultural development was really missing out the very poorest, uh, a group that got called the ultra-poor, um, and who really weren't accessing these uh, services and, uh, and products being provided by BRAC and other NGOs and the government in the country. So we did quite a lot of research um, over a few years uh, to develop a, a, a model of work that would try and reach these people living in ultra-poverty, which was typically around half the extreme poverty line level. Um, so really sort of 70, 80 cents, uh, US cents a day living on something like that. And um, uh, over a number of years, with a lot of trial and um, uh, uh, trials and different experimentation, we came up with a, a model that, um, that uh, was called targeting the ultra poor and has become known more broadly as the graduation approach, um, which is, is a very holistic uh, approach to people living in extreme poverty by combining um, uh, work on financial inclusion uh, uh, f through um, um, providing access to uh, assets and finance, together with livelihoods development to help uh, people start a small business, um, often in rural areas in, in livestock, um, social protection through providing um, a small stipend or some resources to, to enable them to uh, take risks and develop a new, a new business. And also, uh, probably the most important aspect is is very uh, intensive mentoring from a, a field worker who, who visits um, these, these uh, households uh, you know, every week um, to support them through that process. So, so that, that program started um, and um, uh, uh, was assessed through a randomized controlled trial, which showed that it had quite substantial impact. Um, and we followed up the study over um, uh, five years and now seven years after the the um, the, the uh, program, which lasts for 24 months, or um, a very intensive support, um, and that showed that, that not only um, during the course of the program did you get some uh, uh, significant benefits, but perhaps what was more interesting was that afterwards the benefits continued to accrue to those particular households. Um, so they, they continue to, to, to uh, uh, graduate from a situation of, of extreme poverty. Um, so that, and that program has now been, um, based upon that research, has now been um, scaled up in a number of other countries through other organizations, and a very uh, important role in that was played by uh, a program uh, run by CGAP, and it's very um, exciting that we've got a couple of colleagues formerly of CGAP, uh, in the room today, uh, running a program to replicate that model in, in um, uh, eight other countries and got similar results also with a randomized control trial. Um, so what, what, does, what does the research um, and the, the studies that we've been hearing this morning um, uh, inform our, um, our work in this, this particular approach? Well, the thing that really has struck me, and we've and we've um, also reflected on is, is that uh, it's, you know, specific sector kind of orientated approaches, you know, do not get the results uh, that we're hoping. We need a holistic view. We need all the different entities and organizations to be collaborating um, closely together. And in terms of enabling people to sustain their escape from poverty, um, social protection plays a key role, and a, a, a very critical role that um, you know, after you've been through an NGO or a government program, like a graduation type of program, you need a mechanism that stops people, you know, when they have a household shock or environmental shock, that there's a, there's a system in there to, to enable them that, to ensure they don't fall into destitution. Um, so that's the work that um, Brack and others are doing around the graduation uh, uh, um, approach with the ultra poor is very much focusing now on integrating into government service provision. It has a lot of challenges as well because whereas you get NGOs who have very talented and skilled field workers um, who are very good at that soft <coughs> skills of mentoring and so on, um, governments often uh, have a bigger challenge around that type of um, that type of very intensive work with households. So it's about collaborating with the people who have those skills 
together with government institutions who have you know, large-scale uh, social protection and cash transfer programs to ensure that you know, when the household has a shock, they are able to uh, be, be caught by such a safety net. Um, so those are the, the, my, you know, my main points. I was also uh, particularly struck by, you know, the, 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 the research findings around, um, uh, you know, that wage employment is in, increasingly Im important. So um, whereas one of the big strategies around the graduation work that we're doing is about self-employment, you know, I think we need also roots into wage employment as those grow as well. Um, that uh, and you know a very important part of social protection uh, schemes and should be also focused on the risks pre pre uh, presented by health shocks uh, within the family. So health insurance uh, should play a very very important role. And I was quite inspired. You know, BRAC is a financial institution as well as a development organisation. So perhaps there's a opportunity to, to link our health programmes together with our. Uh, uh, microfinance operations to provide some health insurance products as models for um, for, for larger scale implementation. Great, thank you. And pretty much on time. Diana. Thanks. So um, just to uh, situate myself, ATD Fourth World, ATD is all together in dignity. Um, we are, uh, similar to what Lewis was saying, the people that we're with are the ultra-poor, um, but a difference is that that's in a variety of continents, um, so, you know, in a country like Tanzania and here in the UK with people who are in the deepest situations of poverty. And one of our big priorities is to make it possible for people in extreme poverty from different continents to collaborate together because they can draw different insights from uh, that work. So currently we're engaged with Oxford University on doing collaborative research uh, that's designed by people in extreme poverty in Tanzania, Bangladesh, the United Kingdom, uh, the United States, and a couple of other places. Um, so in terms of my um, reactions to this really uh, deep qualitative research that we've been hearing about today, I'm, I'm very uh, impressed, particularly at all of the interviews um, that really bring to that um, bottom-up views of what people are dealing with. Um, I think particularly things that have come out uh, around mentoring approaches, around what can empower people rather than uh, put them in dependency are very, very important to build on. Um, but I do have a couple of concerns. Um, one is connected to social protection. Um, one of the, the things that we heard from Kenya is where there's a proposal that beneficiaries of social protection be required to engage in specific public works or training programs. And that sounds really good. Um, you know, what's wrong with, with public works and training? But we've seen how that plays out in a country like the UK. Um, there's a book called The New Poverty by Stephen Armstrong where he describes what uh, you have to do to get a job seeker's allowance here. Um, you can be required to apply for 24 separate jobs each week, and you have to do that online. So if you don't have access to the internet, first you have to find money to go to the library, and you have to do it in the time slots the library allows, and he basically demonstrates how it's impossible, and you end up getting sanctioned and then spending your energy trying to cope with the effect of that sanction instead of trying to find a job. Um, conditionality always is with good intentions, but it's designed from the top down, and that can end up shutting out the very people that we want really to be able most to take advantage of social protection and of things that are meant to, to give people a real uh, chance. We should also be very careful about um, the process of qualifying, even for benefits that are unconditional, because it can be a process that creates powerlessness and that humiliates people. And that can undermine people's strength, people's resilience. It could create an obstacle. Um, the second point that I wanted to bring up uh, comes back to stigma that Vidya was speaking about this morning. Um, specifically, you were speaking about the gender stigmas that exist. And it with um, the people that we've worked with, 
it's also important to look even more broadly at stigmas against people in poverty, um, whatever their gender. Uh, sometimes that's linked to ethnic um, oppression, which was also discussed this morning, but not exclusively. Those stigmas exist really in every society. Um, it's Again, it's been shown by, by Oxford, Robert Walker, uh, the shame of poverty is demonstrable. You can measure it here in the UK, in Uganda, in Norway, in South Korea. Um, and that shaming of people in poverty is also something that really undermines people's possibility of overcoming poverty, of taking advantage of programs that are meant to help them. Um, the questions of people being socially mistreated by neighbors who are better off, but also feeling like they're being uh, victims of systemic bullying. There's a lot of institutions that leave people in poverty with the feeling that they're being beaten down. Um, people who I spoke earlier about the re research we're doing right now with Oxford and people in very different countries are talking about how poverty creates anxiety, fear, humiliation, uh, feelings of inferiority, and it eats away at you. And this is made worse because, in general, anti-poverty programs are designed, implemented, and evaluated from the top down. When people have the opportunity to be part of that design, to be part of making sure that a program is really going to reach people like them, uh, that can turn things around. Um, one more point, I want to come back to some of the things we were saying about agriculture this morning. Um, I think it's really valuable to point out in these studies uh, how important very small agriculture can be. But we need to do that in a lot of different levels. Um, one experience that my organization has had in um, rural Burkina Faso is to see children who are living in the street of the capital, who are living on their own, very often grew up in rural communities. And sometimes they had the chance to go, you know, maybe for just six months or a year to school. What did they hear in school? They did not hear the value of the small agriculture that their parents are engaging in. They heard that the future is in an office building in a city someplace far away. And that led them to try, you know, their, their chance in the city, most often to fail and then to be humiliated and not be able to go home. Um, we really need to look, even before the age of you know, vocational training, look at what are we teaching children about the value of you know, knowing how to do subsistence farming, um, the value of agriculture. And Alex was saying that I used to live in Madagascar. We also saw a project in Madagascar where the government wanted to give homeless families a chance to have land to get into agriculture but unfortunately did it very, very badly. So families who beforehand had been working at the garbage dump, recycling garbage, who had never earned a living in farming, were given a piece of land way out in the country. It was not good land, and they were not given any training in how to make that work, and they were literally fenced in um, and hungry, and so they climbed over the fence um, and, and left because it, it wasn't a sustainable approach because it hadn't been designed with them. So that's coming back to the, the question of bottom-up versus top-down. Hmm. So I think that's my five minutes. Yeah. Great. Um, Romley, uh, I'm just going to throw out a question. You can say what you were going to say anyway. But uh, um, that is this a case that the policies and programs that are being put in place are failing the people who are being impoverished? Or is it the case that the policies and programs just simply aren't meant to deal with these people? We've had the first two speakers focus particularly on the ultra-poor, and mm -hmm. that's not necessarily where a lot of the policy and investment focuses. So, Yeah, and I mean, I think the latter is actually the, the key issue. So I was going to um, group my remarks into um, the implications for developing country governments, the policy implications, um, and I'm afraid I wasn't there this morning, so I haven't heard most of the discussion, but I have read the excellent uh, synthesis report, so I'm drawing largely on that. 
trying to think about what are the policy implications for governments, then thinking about the donor side. So I sit in the UK, as Alex said, I work for the One Campaign, which is an advocacy and uh, campaigning organisation. And my role is very much to lobby, to campaign targeting the UK government um, on issues like aid, quality and quantity. Um, and then uh, at the end, I'm just going to make a couple of remarks about what does this mean for NGOs in terms of our campaigning and the way we talk about development? What are the implications? So I think the first point about policy, and this relates to your question, I'm really struck by this sort of growth from below question. I'm struck by it for two reasons. Firstly is I have been talking about, I have heard this being talked about for a number of years, and we still don't seem to have got this right. We still seem to be in this sort of juxtaposition when we talk about policy between either sort of growth at all costs, large scale, you know, we want big roads, we want ports, we want massive infrastructure. Um, or versus saying, well, we're focusing on the social sector. This whole kind of growth from below doesn't seem to have permeated the dialogue. Um, and we don't seem to have kind of agreed on a core set of policy implications on that. So it's a bit of maybe an existential question of why are we struggling with this so much? Why do we not have a good set of policy recommendations? The other thing that struck me from looking at this is the whole issue of gender came through very strongly. Now, you might expect that, but it was actually more nuanced than I would have expected. The point that in Ethiopia, for example, women-headed households tended to be more dynamic um, and better able to escape poverty. The issue of women's control over land and assets, as one might have expected, came through very <coughs> strongly in, 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 I think, all the case studies. Um, but this point also about good marital relations, which is one of the things that I wouldn't have necessarily uh, expected to see or sort of really struck me that actually that's a really important area and a big contributor to people falling back into poverty is marital breakdown. So what are the policy implications of that? Is it about education? Is it about social support? What I thought that was quite an interesting point. And then within the social sectors, I was very struck by this emphasis on post-primary education, that primary education on its own is not enough to uh, secure the sustained escapes out of poverty. And then you've got to think about post-primary, secondary, vocational, and so on. But what does that mean for governments? You know, we're always telling governments focus on primary and even pre-primary to uh, promote <coughs> equity. Often they can't do both. They have budget-constrained resources. I think there's some real trade-offs there to explore. Then in terms of the donor picture, there were four remarks that I wanted to make. Again, this growth from below point really struck me. And if you think about the global debates on development finance, so I spent six years in ODI working on development finance. I was very much engaged in those global debates. It's all about blended finance, billion for billions to trillions, supporting the private sector. How does that match with this growth from below? And I think, unfortunately, it doesn't match terribly well. So I think there's a real question there. I was also very struck by the point on disability that came up uh, very strongly in the synthesis report and our current Secretary of State has a very strong interest in disability so I thought that was quite interesting. I don't know if um, Tim wants to say anything more on that. Again, this point about primary education, I thought that's interesting from a donor perspective. There is a lot of focus on primary education quality at the moment and it sounds like that's the right focus in the right direction. And then finally, again, this sort of existential question about how do donors and governments work together on some of these issues? And we've sort of gone full circle that we started off in the aid debates, you know, 20, 30 years ago, with it much more being about national interest. Then we sort of had a kind of top-down conditionality. Then we sort of had Paris Declaration ownership approaches. We're back to national interest again now, again, particularly in the UK context. What does that mean? How does that fit with some of the findings of this research? And again, my suspicion is it probably doesn't fit terribly well, but it would be good to maybe do a bit more research on that. Then finally, just thinking about what does it mean for NGOs such as one? And there were just two remarks I wanted to make here. One is that we always talk about lifting people out of poverty. We always talk about the aggregate poverty trends, you know, poverty has reduced. We pretty much never talk about people falling back into poverty. So that's just in the way we, the language we use, I think that's a real correction for us. And actually some of the policy recommendations around health, education, growth and so on need to very much be framed in that way. And then I think the other key message is thinking about economic policy as much as about social policy. I certainly know with one, we've had a big campaign on education, we're going to campaign on health. We tend to very much think about the social sectors. And this economic policy lens, I think, is a really important one. 
and probably from the gender findings, I think the sort of gender angle is maybe a way into that, that you can talk about economic policy, but in a way that makes sense to people and resonates with the sort of campaigners, if you're talking about women's access to land, women's economic empowerment and, and access to markets. So those are just some mm. top line findings. Thanks. Tim, uh, DFID's a big player on the financing and thinking about poverty. Is the set of issues that have been highlighted in this research, is it is it on DFID's agenda? Not enough, too much? Should it be more? No, it's, it's definitely on our agenda. Um, I mean, I think, I think we try things on a very broad front, but we are always focused around this issue of, of poverty and extreme poverty reduction and, and trying to get people out of poverty on a sustainable basis. Um, I mean, I think the danger of coming after everybody else is um, that everybody else has probably already said it more eloquently, but I think it is interesting in focusing us on this question of inclusive growth, because I think we talk about it a lot, but um, we're not quite sure how to measure it. And we know, you know that increasingly there's quite a lot of recognition that um, per capita GDP is an imperfect measure of growth um, anywhere, but particularly in a lot of countries with you know, rather underdeveloped national account systems. So we need, we need that, definitely, but we need something a little bit broader as well. Um, so, I mean, I think what this research does for us is it highlights all those kind of missing or broken rungs on the ladder out of poverty. So you've got, you know, the, the concerns of people trying to make a livelihood for themselves, trying to make better opportunities for their children right down at the bottom. And then you've got the, you know, the grand long-term creative destruction. You've got to do all that stuff. You've got to invest in ports and railways and, and everything else. But you've got to find some way of marrying them up. And a lot of the time, I think we're not very good at what happens in the middle. You know, we don't have that meso lens on, on what we're trying to do. Um, so if research like this can help us to identify and then fix those rungs, um, help you know, poor people not only benefit from but contribute to economic development as producers, as savers, as consumers, you know, I, I think that's where this research can really help. Um, I mean, some of it we knew, some of it was, was to me at least very surprising and very, very helpful. Um, I think the other thing it does is it helps us look at, helps us to recognize again the diversity amongst the poor, you know, that the, the lives of the poor and the poorest can be, can be quite varied, um, you know, so you've got rural and urban, you've got male and female, you've got um, pastoralist and agriculturalist, and all of these have different maps, different sets of capacities and opportunities and are going to be affected by policies and climate change in different ways. And I think we need to get a little bit more nuance. We've got a few things that are proven and work quite well, but we've got to think better about how we adapt, how we combine things. One of the interesting things I think is um, thinking about combinations and sequences and how we help governments to not only design something that will broadly work well, but then think about how we can build capacities sub-national levels, at local levels, to kind of tailor those, to be able to draw down on well-designed national policies, budgeted national policies, and think, okay, how do we put these together for people in this area? You know, what do, you know, what mix and match do we want to do? And that's, that's, quite, that's quite complex. Um, we need different combinations of yeah, economic and social policies. And one of the things I like about this, and I like about primary research, is it, it shows that those those labels are, to a certain extent, labels of convenience and discipline. You know, economic policies have social consequences, and social policies have economic outcomes as well. You know, so that whole point about family, good family relations, you know, it, it makes a huge difference in a trajectory out of poverty. We, we are used to thinking of the opposite, that alcoholism and family breakup, you know, that's a, a driver down into poverty. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought of it in terms of the opposite, and what can we do to promote those better ways of being with your, your immediate family that you know, would help, um, help you work your way out of poverty. Um, in terms of immediate policies, uh, immediate things, I'm, yeah, I mean, social protection has to remain central, but now's the time to start thinking in a bit more nuanced ways. You know, what is a social protection plus plus agenda? A lot of it's to do with graduation, it's to do with 
you know, connecting that basic consumption smoothing safety net to how can you help people seize opportunities to do new things, to do more remunerative things, to spread their risk. Um, how can we do that without prematurely backing off supporting the, the kind of trans transfers, the consumption smoothing bit, which is essential. That's the foundation from which other people can, can do something new. Um, how do we make graduation policies work in urban areas? To date, you know, we've largely been trying them in rural areas. Urban is very different. Um, behavioral science, there's some really interesting stuff now, and, and you were talking about the, you know, the debilitating effects of shame. I think we better understand that. We also, there are some interesting, somewhat strange um, findings coming out of behavioral science research about aspirations, about how you can actually, there is a measurable effect to giving people a little bit of hope and some ideas and some sense of actually you don't have to, you know, getting away from fatalism um, and thinking there are different ways of, of being and, and you can change your your circumstances. Um, and I'm probably going, yes, I am going on too long. Uh, Well-managed urbanisation. Um, I'm guilty of this. I know my, you know, background, my start was in rural development and rural poverty. And I think we still tend to come at poverty and think rural. Um, more than 50% of the world is urban, of the global population is urban. The, rural, the poor population in the world is still largely rural, but that is changing. That is changing quite rapidly. Urbanization has been a driver of poverty reduction, of sustained exits from poverty in Asia, Latin America. It's not working quite so well in that sense in Africa. And we need to think about why, you know, what, what systems, what government, you know, definition of municipalities, what's working to impede that? How can we have urbanization that creates jobs for poor people within urban boundaries, but also that serves to sort of pull up the hinterlands, create opportunities, allow people to send remittances, allow, you know, bring down the price of agricultural input, so link a, link a city to its, its um, neighbouring countryside. So I think there's a whole load of really interesting things here. I think it's, it's good because it restores some optimism at a time when, you know, we kind of feel that all those things that we were feeling quite good about having achieved from the late 90s to the early 2010s seem to have been petering off a bit. You know, we feel slightly the golden age of development has, you know, maybe we're in a bit of a trough. It's nice to remember that actually there are still ways that people are, are lifting themselves out of poverty, even if they get knocked back a bit too often. Thanks. Thanks. Um, th that, I think that's really helpful. One of the things that I, I pick up from a lot of these comments is uh, that um, it, it, is, it is complex and personal. Um, we are talking about people whose lives are different, whose journeys are different. There are some fantastic stories in the research. If you haven't had a chance to read them, just kind of tracing and giving nuance to what happens to individual people as they go through and how the lack of tolerance to risk can lead to, uh, or changes in life can lead to impoverishment. You've described a very, um, I don't mean this, uh, is a very intensive model uh, that you pursue uh, to, to get people into graduation. And, and Romley makes the point that, um, you know, a lot of the big development conversation that we have here in other places is about bringing in big actors and big infrastructure and big resources. Um, and so I'm just kind of left wondering a little bit if you can, you know, let me just ask one or two of you if you have a minute each to say, does what you are advocating match the way in which we tend to work as a community, tend to advocate as a community? And, and, and if not, then what what needs to change in order to uh, address the, the challenge that's left on the table? This is a, I mean, I was actually just thinking about that as I heard the remarks that, you know, I, I spent the best part of the last three months going around talking about 130 million girls out of school, which is a fact, as far as we know. There are 130 million girls out of school. Um, but we're presenting that as a very sort of blanket, big picture. Now, as you say, each of those girls has a story. It's very variegated. And there's a question in my mind about, you know, is it correct to then sort of have one set of policy prescriptions you know we've been talking to diffid about diffid's approach to education which is something that you know they've just launched a new policy on education which they're going to roll out across all the diffid offices i'm assuming 
you know, can we talk in those very big picture ways? Or do we actually need to have a much more nuanced and much more variegated approach about, well, actually, the policy is going to look very different. It needs to be very context specific. Um, having said that, comms people in ODI, they always come and bash you over the head if you say context specific. They say, you can't say that in terms of your messages. It's not, you know, it's not a conclusion. So I think there's some, you know, there's some real challenges there. I do think the kind of the local level, as I think Tim was talking about, I mean, I think that's very much the way to go in the sense of, you know, it needs to be up about local governments designing those programs or local NGOs and, and so on. There's obviously real questions there about capacity, about accountability, about financial management and all of those sorts of things. But I think one broad message that I would take out of this actually is, is about that kind of the, the need for local approaches and local variability and absolutely not a one size fits all, which again, we've sort of known for years, but we seem to have forgotten. Anyone else want to throw into that before I go out to the audience? Well, the um, question about the stigmas and stereotypes uh, and changing that on a broad scale, it is a communications question. Um, and so I just want to highlight some work that was done recently by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Um, <clears throat> they were looking specifically at changing attitudes here in the UK about poverty. Um, but one of the findings that I found really interesting was how they saw that you need to speak differently to people who are politically conservative and politically liberal. But they found one thing that worked positively on both, which was <clears throat> if you're talking about poverty in the context of both social justice and compassion, and if you bring those threads together, then across the political spectrum, we can all kind of say, hmm, maybe there's something we need to change, and ideas can very concretely change. Their research is very, very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just reflecting on the research, particularly in this morning, um, what is what you know is really uh, clear to me that is that um, you know, the, we do need to expand you know policies and programs like social protection, but they need to be very closely aligned to the needs of individual families, and that's a big challenge when it comes to nationwide mm. schemes like social protection. How do you actually you know have a system that works for all but also works for the individual family and that's a that's a big challenge so you know and, and one solution to that is is develop capacity at a local level and and close integration with community mechanisms and civil society and ngos in that area to ensure that they, social protection is linked to actually the individual needs of families hmm. yeah on that yeah i mean the other thing i'd say this is a slightly half-formed thought but i think we need to we need to have, we need to sustain our efforts a little bit. Um, I mean, we were talking about Ethiopia today and the Productive Safety Net programme, and I think it's absolutely remarkable. You know, I worked a bit on the UK government's support to that programme. I don't think it could show an awful lot for the first four or five years. It wasn't really that, it didn't deliver something that was an awful lot better, or provably better, than, you know, humanitarian relief, which it was meant to replace. It took persistence, it took patience, strategic patience from everybody, from the government, from the donors, from everybody involved in, in implementing it, to progressively learn, you know, to build the capacities, to deliver transfers on time, to you know, make sure the public works are effective, all the rest. And now it, it is quite remarkable and it's having huge effect at scale. I think there's a slight danger in chasing short-term results. And you know, I'm a huge believer in the results agenda. But you know, if we say if it hasn't delivered within two years, we cut it. I think that's a really, really dangerous mistake. So this thing about tailoring, and how do we balance scale with customization? Part of it is is being patient and sticking with something and experimenting rather than switching to something completely new and being faddish. Uh, great. Anybody from the audience? I have a gentleman here. Um, if you wouldn't mind identifying yourself uh, and asking question or comment. My name is uh, Mubin Rafiq. I'm Managing Director, MSME. Um, all the panel you have are very experienced people and have been on different forums. So I've got uh, one question for Tim, the same simple questions, Tim and for Luis, is that, uh, Tim, can you tell me what is DFID is doing for small enterprises in Africa <laughs> or anywhere else. And uh, for Luis, I just want to know that you have a lot of experience and especially of 
Brack, what is the problem you see in creating more jobs in small enterprises? And if it is given a total freedom to you, what is it that you would like to do something different which the rest of the uh, NGOs not been able to do it? With uh, Romley and Diana, I just want to request you just to tell me what is it so different that you would like to, if you are in a totally independent position, and that is the only way to alleviate poverty is by creating jobs. And how can we create jobs in small enterprises? And what is it that you would like to share, please? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is that DFID is a bit of a hyper-specialised organisation, so the support to small and medium enterprises isn't an area of my specialty, so I can't tell you an awful lot. We have a private sector development department. Uh, we have research into sort of what are the drivers of growth and a number of very interesting things there, including on, um, with the World Bank, something called the Gender Innovation Lab, looking at you know how you can help women become entrepreneurs and um, engage in the economy. Um, there are various things we do. You know, one is trying to ensure access to working capital, to finance. Um, the other one is is skills and trying to uh, work on sort of both input and um, output markets and, and supply chains. So a lot of things, I'm not the specialist, but I could try and find people and, and they could supply you with more, more information on that. Did you have a, another question? Um, I don't know. Well, not maybe that will yeah. the others. Uh. I, I mean, I was just going to say on the jobs point, I 100% agree with you on, on jobs, but it's a question of which kind of jobs and for which people. And again, the last uh, point I made in my remarks was about actually I think the gender lens is quite an interesting one to go down, not least because, you know, I'm always thinking about how do we campaign and how do we communicate this to the, to the public? Um, you know, how do we keep making the case for international development and aid, which, as you know, in the UK is massively under threat and we have to keep selling it all the time. And I think it, it's hard... I would say it's very hard just to talk about jobs in a blanket way, but I think about if we can say, actually, let's talk about you know particular jobs for particular groups of women, particularly, because I think that resonates very well. And actually, by the way, the evidence suggests that that's also extremely important in terms of gender equality. So I think that's one place in which the sort of policy recommendation and then the sort of how do you sell it to the public come together actually quite nicely in that area. Um, uh, Mr. Rafi, what? You asked about uh, what what we would do. I mean, I think in the area of micro and small uh, enterprises, we've had some very interesting experience over the last couple of years in developing skills uh, in Bangladesh and a very intensive skills development program by um, placing individual um, apprentices in small and micro enterprises to learn the job in partnership with those small enterprises. And I think that's a you know, and it's highlighted in the research as well, and the, these papers this morning, is that skills for employment is a big gap, and there needs to be a lot of focus on that, on you know, very much the vocational side, the practical skills that you need, um, together with finance. So these small businesses need access to um, good quality finance uh, in their local community so they can grow their businesses. Um, and, I mean, Brackett's trying to provide both, but skills on a very small scale in Bangladesh, but finance through our microfinance network in in around six countries um, so you know both of those are really really critical um, I spoke earlier about the families in Madagascar who were working scavenging um, at the garbage dump um, and recycling what they found and one of the problems there they were doing informal work that was of economic value and they were earning a living from it when the country decided uh, to make those into jobs with more physical protection because it's very dangerous work and so on, those jobs were given to other people. And that's when they were you know, shipped out to a plot of land that was unformable. Um, designing new jobs has to be done with people, and particularly in the informal sector, to really support what people already know how to do, have been doing to scrape by, and give support to make those into decent jobs. Um, I think there's a lot of room to improve. Other questions? This gentleman here. We will take two, three. 
Okay, Martin Justin again from Food for the Hungry. I would like to ask the panel about uh, success indicators and in particular at the community level. So specifically, if you're trying to identify uh, communities that have sustainably escaped from poverty, um, what would be your key indicators, perhaps two or three key indicators that that has in fact happened and that it's uh, unlikely to fall back into poverty? Hmm. Good question. We'll go here and then in the back. We'll take these three all together and then you guys can respond to what you want. To Hello, Kate Bird, ODI. Um, this morning, um, there were discussions about the challenge of implementing through decentralization. And just now, the discussion seemed to be suggesting that decentralization is, is the way forwards in terms of tailoring interventions so that they can reach the very poorest. This morning, the suggestion was that elite capture and corruption can be a problem and that um, the poorest are better reached through central gov government-led interventions. Um, other studies elsewhere have shown that uh, central government targets with local flexibility in terms of how to achieve those targets can be highly effective. So I just wonder if the panel can come back to us on whether central government is best, decentralization is best, or central government targets implemented flexi flexibly is best. <laughs> and, and is there an answer to that question? <laughs> Marcus in the back. Uh, thank you, Marcus Manuel. Uh, Marcus Manuel from ODI. Um, I just wanted to ask the panel's reflection on what I thought was the fundamental new insight from the research we saw this morning, which was the chart which suggested that more people were falling back into poverty than were coming out of poverty. It was this you know, reverse ratio that Andrew Shepard presented to us. Seems to me that's really quite a startling and deeply concerning uh, statistic, if that really is the case. And I want to know whether that chimed with their own experience. We've seen in over household poverty surveys a declining and a stagnating of the rates of poverty reduction, but this is the first that's suggesting we might be going the other way. And it's very much counter to the narrative, say, of the world poverty clock, which says, you know, for every one that uh, falls back to escape, and very, very different picture. Um, you know, are we right to be alarmed? Are we seeing the first sights here of some very real-time evidence that suggests something is not really going right? Thank you. Hmm. Okay, set of good questions. Success indicators, centralization versus decentralization, or some crazy combination thereof. Um, and are, is this a macro trend of, of more people falling backward, and how concerned do we need to be? So, volunteer. Yeah, Tim, you want to, sir, okay. Diana? Um, about the question of how um, you know, what indicators can say that a community is, is succeeding. Um, that's actually kind of at the heart of the research I mentioned that we're doing now with people in poverty in different countries and with Oxford. Um, so I just want to read you a short quote that's coming out of that, um, because one of the big things that people talk about is dehumanization. Um, <clears throat> and so this one person said, you know, we end up prioritizing basic needs over do I have power because we're used to never, never having power. And we have to first make sure we have dinner for our kids. So that's the priority. But actually, we'd rather be treated decently. We're used to going without, as long as you treat me respectfully with dignity. So that research that I'm talking about isn't, isn't done yet. Um, it's ongoing. But it, when we talk to communities, that's one of the most important indicators that, that they talk about. It's not around um, income. and. I'm not going to say anything about decentralized government because that's not my specialty, but I do want to react to the, the question about um, people falling back into poverty because I think the, the whole vocabulary around whether you know, a person or a household is escaping poverty or falling back into it, it, it comes from looking at this as very individualized and it's connected to that question of stigma where people in poverty are always categorized as the deserving and the undeserving. Um, you know, some people are making great strides and they're strivers and others, well, they're just hopeless and, and how do you help them? It, the words that people themselves tend to use are not around escape. Um, they're around you know, things that connect you to your whole community because you can also have a lot of conflict where one particular person is actually achieving things 
in ways that leave them to feel like they're betraying other members of their family or community who are struggling more than they are. And you know, to work on all those connections between people and also the fact of facing a stigma that's not just on one person or a set of individuals, that's, but that's collective. Um, the, the word that our members use, it's, it's not around escape or falling back, it's, it's around overcoming. It borrows from the civil rights movement where you know, you're facing uh, discrimination together, you need to overcome it together, and in fact our whole society needs to overcome the fact that we have some people in poverty. Um, I think that was a really good question. Uh, I don't have an easy answer. I mean, maybe the thing would be there's no one indicator. You know, you want to look at a whole variety of things. But maybe happiness. And, you know, there's, there's been this interesting movement that says, actually, at an aggregate level, um, sort of Gallup poll happiness scores correlate fairly well with, you know, poverty headcounts um, up to a certain level, and then it doesn't quite work. But in the in low and middle income countries actually maybe that would be a reasonable reflection of their material comfort and the degree to which there is still some com community cohesion and some identity and some sense of belonging and you know not being displaced by modernity so maybe that would that be an interesting one to try at the local level um centralized decentralized or local routes to central targets i mean i think it all depends to you know just sit on the fence i think it depends on context i tend to go with you know, something along the road of local solutions to, you know, centralised problems with centralised funding and systems to support it. But, you know, I, I think it will depend and, and vary from one context to another. Um, the reversal in poverty counts, because, I mean, I think this is important. My understanding is what we're, what the research is saying is that with three points in time, the number of people who went up and continued going up, a sustained escape, was outnumbered by the people who went down in any one period. If you add up the people who went up twice in a row with those who went up once, you still get more people net coming out of poverty. So I think this, I don't think these two are in contradiction. I think we're still saying there's net poverty reduction, but quite a few of the people who start moving out of poverty suffer a reversal. And over that second period, some more people might come out of poverty and they might continue going out or they might be reversed again. So it's about churning. And overall, I think in all of the countries, there was a, a net movement out, but with significant numbers falling back. The world poverty clock, um, I, it's inspirational. I can see why it happens. But if you look into how global poverty counts are constructed, they are such patchwork quilts of trying to pin things together, do purchasing power parities, interpolate from one survey to another. You know, most countries in Africa only do a poverty survey every five years. So the idea that we have a clock that's counting down every minute and shows us, you know, to this single poor person, how many people, it's, it's an interesting rhetorical thing, but it's, I would not take the world poverty clock very seriously. Um, that's just me ranting. That's okay. Um, okay. Andrew. Any clarification on the numbers, or you like the way Tim well, described I it? I like the way Tim described it. I think we're going to have to go, go away and do one more sum on them. <laughs> Can I just make a couple of quick uh, remarks? Um, on the centralization, decentralization, uh, this uh, serves me right for not coming in the, in the morning in terms of the detail. And I mean, I think I'd agree with Tim that it very much is very sort of context specific. But for me, this issue of the sort of the local level and how important that is, however that looks in different countries and different contexts, I think is, is quite an important one. Just to come back to Tim's point on the world poverty clock. I mean, again, I live in this world of sort of macro figures and sort of big statements. And I think it's important that we still have these things even though we may not want to take them all that seriously. I remember, wasn't it Adrian Wood famously said the MDGs should be taken seriously, but not literally. And I thought that was such a good expression. And I think probably something like the world poverty clock should be taken seriously, but not literally. Because we, you know, we are all working in a context where aid and support for development, particularly in this country, is quite significantly under threat. And we have to think about how do we do our work on the ground, but also communicate that to people in a way that engages them which is, links a bit to the point about poverty reduction, because I think people will start getting a bit sort of twitchy if, we, if we're talking a lot about people falling back into 
poverty, there might be quite a lot of nervousness. I think that the, the what we know in terms of communicating to the public is that the sort of progress narrative really works. People don't like the idea that, you know, we're putting all this money into aid and 20 years further on, we're, you know, we're not making any progress and people are still living in poverty. So we have certainly been trying to talk much more about the progress na narrative. But I'm, I'm wondering how do we square that with some of the, 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 the research that's come out here and also in terms of when we're looking at the, the policies, we tend to always talk about these are the policies that help people, you know, lift people out of poverty. And actually, perhaps we should have much of a, a stronger focus on the policies that keep people out of, of poverty. And, and just even just changing the way we, we talk about that so that we're sort of socializing those ideas that it's not about lift, just about lifting, it's about keeping and it's about managing risk and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's certainly, for me, that's a kind of key takeaway from all of this. And just quickly on the indicators question, Martin, um, uh, you know, in the graduation program, there's a whole range of indicators to to demonstrate graduation or not. But 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 one of the very important ones, which is often missing, is actually you know integration into the social life of the community, and that's something you shouldn't be you know people themselves really highly value being able to participate in community events and having the resources to do that. I know that's something sometimes a a problem, as as Andrew mentioned this morning, having to you know the, the resources that are required, but it is of a very significant part of um, of, the, of how people value their ability to participate in community life, and that's a strong part of being not not poor and out of poverty. Mm. Um, I, I, one comment, and I want to go to a, a, an online question we've gotten to push you all a little bit further, maybe in the last uh, minute or two that we have. Um, I mean, I think part of the challenge of what Romley just said is whether we have a sense that risks are actually rising for the poorest, those recently out of poverty and those in poverty. Um, is there something happening between health and climate and conflict, uh, closing space for civil society, some of the broader challenges of freedom and so on that are going on in the world. Is there actually something happening that might be driving a trend uh, towards uh, higher risk and therefore greater impoverishment? I don't know, just a question. Uh, that's a, a research question for our team, uh, uh, some of the underlying things. And let me just end with that. Uh, we have a, a Carrie Max, the Deputy Director of the International Assistance Research at Global Affairs Canada, um, asked us a question, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, but it's a good final one on this growth from below. Um, basically, something that Romilly started with is that how can we reconcile the importance of growth from below, support for the informal sector in particular? Uh, we at ODI have been doing a bunch of work on the informal sector and the importance of informal sector for providing employment with the billions to trillions agenda um, of mobilizing private sector investment that's in the SDGs. A lot of that conversation is about sort of bringing in the private sector, and these things are should not be seen as incongruous, and yet there is an incongruity because we know what creates a lot of those jobs, and as the specific example you gave suggests, informality to formality is not necessarily a clear path for a lot of the, the poorest when it happens. Um, and so we put out a paper last week called Informal is the New Normal because the amount of informal jobs that make up uh, the employment economy in sub-Saharan Africa is, is overwhelmingly high. Um, and just thinking about that as a transition problem is probably not totally realistic um, and gets at some of the underlying issues that I think that this, this uh, research has brought out. Uh, that in some ways, we're not always really talking about jobs. We're talking about work. We're talking about gaining a little bit from the, the, the productive employment that you do, whether it's on your own land or spot work or other things. You read a lot of those narratives, and it's about people doing small-scale thing, making traditional beer or other things that are ways in which people put their lives together. It's not the gleaming job uh, that's waiting for you out there once the trillions have arrived and everybody's uh, hired robots to do those jobs. Uh, so uh, um, on that note, uh, anybody want to throw in, we're, we are out of time, anyone want to throw in a last thought on, on that agenda going forward, sort of the, the, the future of work and informality and the lessons from this work and how that affects the, the poorest? 
I mean, my, my question would be, I, I think that the question from Canada is exactly the right question. And actually, if I was still sitting in ODI, this would be the thing that I would research. Actually, how do we map those two things? Because I feel like the conversations are very much going on in separate worlds, and then we're not actually getting really down to the specifics <coughs> about how we bring them together. So somebody should do that. ODI should do it, or somebody should do it. But I think that should be the next conference, would be my suggestion. I mean, yes, I, my understanding is there is a, a strand of thinking amongst development economists that says what we'd always assumed would be happening, which is the next wave is labor costs in China rise, jobs in you know, low-wage, low-skill, export-oriented manufacturing moves to sub-Saharan Africa, and they sort of follow that East Asian path out. There are some reasons to worry that that might not be replicable. You know, that there was a window of opportunity, and maybe it's, it's closing. Maybe automation is one. You know, maybe we're going back into an era of more trade protectionism than, than you know, the high watermark of, of globalization, which isn't very fashionable at the moment. Um, you know, various other things. In the case studies, I didn't read much about someone, you know, or lots of people saying, you know what, um, my 20-year-old daughter went to the city, got a job in a garment factory. Um, there's very little there about manufacturing. You know, and, and that would be the East Asian path and to a certain extent the South Asian path. path. So, you know, maybe there are reasons to worry. Um, maybe the, those kind of big picture opportunities are not quite what they were before and we have to rethink, um, you know, what, what economic opportunities might be for mass escape from, sorry, escape from poverty. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Great. Um, final word, or I think we're out of time... Uh, because um, you did talk about those risks and should we be concerned or pessimistic. Um, the risks are real, but the thing that makes me optimistic is that we have this huge resource that we're not drawing on enough, which is the intelligence and experience of people in extreme poverty themselves. And I think they can help us address all these <laughs> issues that we need yeah. to deal with. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, to completely underline that point, and it's about developing those skills and the talents of those people, and we can orientate our programs and policy towards that talent then we've got the answer. Great. Well, um, it is hard work uh, to bring all of these people and ideas together. We got to do the fun stuff. Uh, but I do want to thank Andrew and the CPAN team for making such a great event today. Um, uh, and thanks to our partners for support and joining me once again in thanking these terrific panelists. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.